when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. The Donald Trump presidential transition team spent the week in constant turmoil, surely a sign that everything will be fine during the Trump presidency. We asked Sam Stein how soon we can all stop worrying. Trump is considering all kinds of weird appointees, including Rudy Giuliani for Secretary of State. So we asked Jessica Schulberg to help us figure out what that would mean for foreign policy, since basically Rudy has none. Republicans in Congress say they're going to repeal Obamacare for real this time. Jeff Young joined us to explain how real things can get. And Republicans in the House of Representatives handed out Make America Great Again hats. So I went to Capitol Hill to ask Wisconsin Republican Reed Ribble, who called Trump a toddler and refused to vote for him, what size his hat is. I'm Arthur Delaney, and this is what happened first. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of So That Happened. We've uh, sort of processed the election result of last week. You know, like we processed some form of indigestion. We have. We're trying. It's, it's a, <laughs> it is a long and lengthy process. It's a long. Politics is a trip through a long, long elementary canal. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. Uh, we're going to be talking about sort of like the future of things. We're going to talk about the future of Obamacare in the Trump administration. We've got a future of foreign policy in the Trump administration. But before we get to that, we're actually going to just sort of like talk about the week that we've had and how abnormal this week has been. So jumping off the start, we have Arthur Delaney. Hi. And we have Huffington Post Deputy Bureau Chief Sam Stein. That's not my title, but it sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll just, take it. <laughs> guess what? You're Deputy Bureau Chief now. Who is the Deputy Bureau Chief? Deputy. There, I, there is none. Okay. I'll take it. Why not? There you go. Uh, <laughs> Zach Carter, for everyone who may be wondering, is on vacation and will be not with us for some time. Okay. Dead. <laughs> He's, He's not, not dead. dead. He's just on vacation. Just on vacation. He was smart enough to take a vacation at this point in time. We're the losers who are stuck here. Here, uh, Sam, by the way, is also the host of Canada Confessional, a podcast for losers. Yeah. Uh, We're going to bring that back. We're yeah. still working on season two here. It's going to be a target-rich environment, yes. I, I feel. Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah. That's your, head, that. that's your headliner. <laughs> All right. So uh, what we've seen in the first week is uh, Donald Trump attempt to have a transition team in place. Things, I think, got off to an okay start when he met with President Obama. They had a cordial conversation. No one no one slashed each other's tires. It <laughs> seemed okay. Uh, but in the ensuing days, it has literally been like a clown show. Am I incorrect in, in, in that assessment? I think you're incorrect in the first part, which is that it looked like it got off to a good start. Cause, it's trying to be hopeful. I know. But the, the stories that emerged while, I mean, on the periphery, it seemed like they were getting along and Obama and uh, Trump were both gracious to each other. And, you know, here you have the guy who was questioning Obama's birthplace, meeting with him and all that stuff. Like pretty quickly after that, um, we started to see reports that uh, – sort of rudimentary facts about transitions uh, were escaping the Trump people. So, for instance, Jared Kushner, uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law, who's playing a very critical role in this transition, uh, reportedly asked Dennis McDonough, uh, the chief of staff for the current president, how many uh, people in the White House can he gets to keep. The and answer is zero, right? It, and beyond like, like sort of house staff. house staff. No, yeah, they don't really get to keep anybody. And I think that sort of underscored or illustrated – um, just how in over their heads uh, the Trump people are. And, you know, uh, Trump himself said, you know, uh, the president and I spoke for 90 minutes. We were supposed to speak for 15, which was a lie. They had scheduled an hour, but whatever. And we got word that even he was sort of trying to come to grips with how the government actually functions and operates. And he hadn't really put much thought into it. Subsequent re reporting of, the, of their meeting uh, showed that. So, you know, I think part of what is getting lost here is just sort of the simple explanation, which is that 
they never expected to win. I mean, the people who Trump had on his staff that I've talked to uh, and the people around the campaign who I've talked to readily admit that they did not expect to win. And so that uh, really hampered uh, any chance for a smooth transition. And then it was further hampered by the fact that the guy they put in charge of this thing, Chris Christie, uh, is completely on the outs right now. I mean, he's been demoted and removed from the head of transition. Now, there's a whole host of reasons for why that's the case, and I could get into them later. But when you remove your transition head right after you win, it basically puts you back on reset. And so we're now starting a process that should have been happening for months. We're trying to cram it into like 70 days. But so how alarming or disconcerting should any of that really be? It sounds like bumbling incompetence. It sounds sort of like King Ralph going to England. But I mean, that's not sinister. I I thought there were other things that were, were way more upsetting. What did you think was upsetting? P- the the story of the week was Steve Bannon appointed oh, yeah, yeah. as the chief okay. strategist for the White so House. So let's let's put the let's put the question of how bad it is that the transition. Let's talk about that first. So, you know, to a certain degree, you think government should and can operate on autopilot, right? Like, you know, you have career officials in these agencies whose job doesn't really change all that much. You know, social security checks have to go out. Um, you know, regulators have to regulate uh planes have to take off and land yeah stuff stuff that basically happens every day where the where the top level officials in the government shouldn't have to be checking in saying oh i want to make sure this is working even in a government shutdown that stuff correct and and i don't think that's necessarily a problem right like i think that will be fine regardless of how terrible this transition is i think what you end up happening what ends up being a problem though is if something bad happens so Let's go down a hypothetical. Let's say, for instance, that an oil rig explodes in the Gulf of Mexico during Donald Trump's first 100 days, which is not like likely to happen, but it could happen. You know, at that point in time, you do need to have people in high level places who can direct the traffic of government, who can make the type of decisions that anyone who worked for the Obama administration during the Gulf of Mexico BP spill will tell you were incredibly difficult and frustrating and horrendous to make. And so what Trump is essentially doing is he's rolling the dice here. He's saying, okay, I can get everyone up to speed eventually, but it's not critically important in the first 100 days or whatever it's going to take. How does he think he's going to get people up to speed when he's asking Dennis McDonough if he's going to stick around? That's the problem, right? Yeah. And now here's, but here's the thing, like if, if this were 2008, I'd be more freaked out about it, right? Remember when Obama took power? Like, I mean, we had a a huge uh, economic crisis, jobs were being shed, the stock market was in shambles. I mean, there was some serious stuff that they had to do, including getting a stimulus bill passed quickly. Trump doesn't have that type of urgency right now. I mean, he he doesn't have any legislative agenda that necessarily has to happen instantaneously. So I do think he has a bit more wiggle room here. That's good. Yeah, I, I mean, sure. It so, still doesn't. It still doesn't bode well for how he's going to act as president. But so we, on, on to the Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon situation. And I'll just say this is, I think, part and parcel with the transition. Uh, even though Bannon occupies a unique presence in this universe, uh, because I'm watching, I'm watching Trump sort of like the team sort of like bring people in and then say no, they're not there. And all these names being floated. And I get a sense that, A, he didn't really expect to have to appoint all these people. And B, he's alienated so many people in the Republican establishment that he's stuck with very limited resources to work with. And so Steve Bannon seems to me, you know, part and parcel of this. He's one guy who was willing to work with Trump during the campaign. There is a certain underlying logic to bringing the guy who ran your campaign into the fold uh, uh, as a White House advisor, chief strategist. But, of course, Steve Bannon has a... Well, checkered past, I think, is probably the kindest way of putting it. Sure. So, like, I look at the Steve Bannon thing um, in two different ways. One is it's an incredibly offensive hire on the surface. I mean, if your goal is to unite um, the country, which ostensibly is the president's goal when he's elected, putting someone like that in the position that he's been put is basically sticking up a middle finger and saying, you know, suck it. And let's let's briefly recap the Steve Bannon story. Uh, We aren't sure whether he himself is a racist anti-Semite, but everybody agrees that white nationalists, racists, and anti-Semites 
love Steve Bannon. Well, and it could just I, be a I coincidence. I think that's generous, to be honest. I know that the evidence here is like, okay, I, I, well, I'm being, the divorce I'm, proceeding, but... You I'm, know, sort of, no, publish, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, I know. He it, published, it's irrelevant. He published a... Um, uh, he's the publisher of Breitbart, or the editor of Breitbart, and they published racist stuff, basically, and anti-Semitic stuff. So, all right, let, but put that aside. The second thing that I look at when I look at the Bannon hiring is that if there's anything that Trump values at all in this world. It's not ideology. It's not competence. It's loyalty. And this is a guy, Bannon, who earned his loyalty. I mean, he won the campaign that no one else thought could be won. And this goes back to why Christie is on the outs, which is that from the people I talk to, Christie's not on the outs necessarily because of Bridgegate and the ethics that happened there, although that contributed to it. But he's on the outs because when the Billy Bush tapes came out, and Trump was sort of at his nadir in the campaign, and everyone was running away from the guy. People went to Chris Christie for comment because Chris Christie was a prominent surrogate. And Christie ducked, and he didn't stand by and defend Trump. And then Christie was supposed to go and be a surrogate at one of these presidential debates, and he said, you know what, I don't want to be part of this, I'm not going to go there. And he didn't show up as a surrogate at one of these presidential debates. And so inside Trump universe, which is an incredibly insular world where people value loyalty above all else, that was seen as an act of incredible disloyalty, and it put him instantaneously on the outs. So that's why you have guys like Bannon and Reince Priebus who stood there and took the heaping piles of shit through the course of the campaign only to emerge victoriously, they get the prizes. And people like Chris Christie, who The first ran guy away, to endorse Trump. But who subsequently ran away from him or didn't play nice the entire time, that's why he's on the outs. I want to just talk about just this week has been just abnormal in a number of different ways. <laughs> Operating from a cheat sheet that... Uh, Joshua Faust put together. You can read it at joshuafaust.com. We've seen Donald Trump promote his business properties on his transition website. We've seen his kids do product placement. He's seeking to have federal employees sign non-disclosure agreements. Um, he's trying to wrangle top security, top secret security clearances for his kids. Uh, a lot of the stuff he's doing just is not normal. It's not within the bounds that we expect our presidents to behave. How important is it going forward for the media to impress upon people that this is not normal? I I think it's very important. I mean, I think the Bannon pick is a good illustration of this. You know, you can't you can't report on him as just a chief strategist who is a campaign manager. I mean like he, all of the baggage that he has is abnormal, too, for someone in that position. I think it's vital to present the right context to readers. And, like, the stuff about securing, you know, uh, getting his kids uh, briefed in on these national security hearings, like... Well, let's talk... I mean, leave that aside. There's also the Im immense field of conflict of interest that's open if they do not put oh, his sure. the stuff into trust. a blind trust. And, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's really it's really it's almost difficult to report on because you're in such uncharted water. And every time you say this is not normal, this is abnormal. You know, people are like almost numb to it at this point, I feel like in readers and and certainly the universe of readers who, um, you know, are fans of Donald Trump don't give a shit. I mean, like when when I was trying to explain why it was abnormal that he ditched his protective pool last night to go have a steak dinner, you know, some na it was just nasty, vitriolic responses as if I had like offended their sensibilities about how the world works. But we're living in really weird and different times. And I think the problem, in the, or not the problem, the challenge that journalists have is like, how do you explain to readers in a way that doesn't seem knee-jerk adversarial that this is breaking with protocol and tradition and that there are ethical problems associated with it and that things he are doing, he's doing are frowned upon by a large section of government employees and all that stuff because the instinct for people who love Trump is that the media is ganging up on him and that they're not calling it fair and square. I mean, some of this also is about us trying to protect these people from having their taxpayer dollars prized from them and laundered into any number of different stupid Trump-related self-enrichment programs. Correct. 
Well, it's going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be hard. Well, we'll we're, do our best, I guess. We're doomed. Fighting, we're fighting through a reality. <laughs> we're fighting through a reality distortion field, and everyone out there can just sort of help us, if you're listening, by when you hear journalists talk about how normal this is, give us a shout and help us amplify that message, you know. And then subscribe to the podcast. And, and subscribe to the it. podcast. And, and I think... Just, just to leave it a final note, and sure. this is something I think you talked about in a, in a post post election discussion about uh, the media future. Uh, I think that it might be incumbent on people who work at different media outlets to think about how they can enhance their collaboration with each other. Uh, Philip Bump at the Washington Post they published a piece where he analyzed um, all of uh, Donald Trump's various complaints on Twitter about the New York Times. Yeah, tracked them back and found out that. Basically, every time Donald Trump complained about New York Times coverage, he was complaining about something that was true. Yeah. And that's that's good that Philip at The Washington Post had The New York Times back on that. That's well, something I think we all need to think about here is, going here forward. Is my, uh, we tend to be friendly competitors. Here is my thing, and I'll, I know that we need to wrap up, but I think very strongly that <clears throat> the media has a collective action problem, which is what you're getting at. Yeah. And when... What needs to happen, at least at least I feel like, is that prior to the roads that will go down with the Trump administration, which it looks like we're going to go down where it's cutting off access, ditching the press, stuff like that, that the people who make up the White House Correspondents Association need to get together and come to some sort of general agreement, whether it's a contract or whatnot, that essentially says, you know, there is a punishment for mistreatment of the press and that there are certain lines you can't cross without consequences. What those consequences are, I'm not, you know, I don't know. But that's a discussion that needs to happen beforehand rather than retrospective or retroactively, I should say, because the press needs to understand that institutionally there are certain things that are under threat. I don't I don't think there's any punishment the press can deliver. Well, at least I think there needs to be an attempt to try to lay down some guidelines. Well, I guess we're going to find out. We'll find out. <clears throat> All right, Sam, thanks for being with us. Guys, it's always a pleasure. I wish I could come back every week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. All right, I'm here in the speaker's lobby just off the House floor with Congressman Reed Ribble. Thank you for being with me. It's always good to be with you, Arthur. I'm glad to, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So, Congressman Ribble, you were one of the earliest and most prominent never-Trump Republicans. You said a year ago that you didn't think he would be good. He won. So how does that feel? Well, you know, I, I, the, during the last couple of weeks of the campaign, you could begin to see... Uh, the momentum turning uh, toward Trump's favor and toward Republicans' favor, quite frankly. And uh, it was clear that he struck a chord. Someone asked me about it the other day. What, what do I think it was? And I think kind of in a, in a nutshell, the Democrats have always pandered to various groups of people. But nobody was really ever pandering to that broad group of people that just got fed up with being told they couldn't say Merry Christmas anymore. And these are the people that decided, you know what, we don't, we don't want to be told that by our government. And uh, we want people to hear us for, you know, to, to actually hear what we think about what's going on in Washington. And they spoke uh, and uh, decided to put the ultimate disruptor into the White House. So there's a lot of debate over why he won 
and you're, you're describing the Trump coalition as an anti-PC war on Christmas demographic? Well, I think you're simplifying it a bit too much. What I think the reason why Trump won is that he appealed to a broad range of both Republicans and Democrats who have been left behind in our nation's economy. And while simultaneously watching um, the political folks that they send to Washington, D.C., pander to everybody else but them. And, and all the promises that President Obama made in regard to the economy never hit their pocketbooks. And so I think what you have is people who, who see that their wages have been repressed. They see ever-increasing health care costs, and they say, wow, that just didn't work out to, for, so well for us. You're definitely right that there are vast numbers of people for whom wages have been stagnant and political elites don't really talk about. But there's, there's also this element of Trumpism, and people debate how much of an element it is, of uh, white nationalism. And that's a term that encompasses racism, uh, anti-Semitism, just all, basically all types of chauvinism. How much of a factor do you think that was? I, I think it was a factor, but it, it probably was a factor that's relatively small in real percentages. Because uh, I can tell you, as I went through my congressional district, which he won by double digits, by the way, um, these were not white nationalists that were supporting him. These were regular uh, Americans, many of them union workers in manufacturing plants who feel that uh, their, their wages have been stifled and they want a change in the economy. And so where there is that element of it, and that's brought on by the Steve Bannon type of characters that he's had around him, um, I don't think it was significant in its size. Uh, I saw that Republicans were passing out Make America Great Again hats at a conference meeting this week. Are you now a proud owner of a Make, a great, a Make America Great Again hat? You know, it's interesting, and this probably won't surprise you at all to know I didn't pick one up. I just uh, I kind of chuckled at the whole thing um, that, uh, that they're going to send out baseball caps. I, I, I found the whole thing, the whole experience uh, near bizarre. And so, no, I didn't grab a hat. Sorry. So the fact that he won, you're not changing your tune. You're not bending in any way toward Trumpism or whatever it represents. Well, not toward Trumpism, but I, I am bending somewhat to the degree that um, just like if had, had Hillary Clinton won and when Barack Obama won, uh, you have to say the American people have spoken. And he's now the president-elect of the United States, for good or bad, and that's up to him. He owns the statements that he's made. Um, and that's, that's up to other people now to measure. However, I do believe that he deserves a chance to show the country what he can and is willing to do. And, then, uh, and I, will, I will support the President of the United States to the degree that we have agreements, and I will continue to call them out on the things I disagree with, as I've done for the last year and a half. Are other Republicans on the Hill annoyed or upset with those of you who were never Trumpers and didn't endorse the president-elect? Not, not at all. I mean, uh, there's been some very gentle and, and um, uh, well-intentioned and, and fun ribbing about, uh, well, you guys didn't see this coming. And Now, everybody, by the way, dozens of them who said, oh, he could never win during the primary, and then when he, he won the primary, said he could never win the general election, and now they have their Ameri Make America Great hats on. And uh, I think what you see is a very unified Republican government that's going to move forward to correct some of the economic disparities that we have. And uh, I think that that's a good thing. So are Republicans now going to be against free trade? Because Donald Trump clearly was. Uh, he said he would repeal NAFTA. He would hike tariffs on all kinds of things. Is, 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 you know, Democrats, some Democrats can, can get along with that. Do you think this is a, a new thing that's going to happen? Well, you know, it's interesting because I have seen uh, colleagues during my six years here just move with the whims of public opinion, and there's some of that right now. This kind of grabbed a life of its own. And yet when you look at the data, the data supports uh, trade agreements for the United States. If you take all the countries we have trade agreements in, and you total up our trade deficit, oh, excuse me, there's not one. It's because where we have trade agreements, we have a trade surplus. Our trade deficit comes predominantly from countries where we don't have a trade agreement that we can set the rules of trade. And U.S. manufacturing output today is at near historic levels. We're producing more things than ever before. The loss of jobs in manufacturing are not the result of trade and never have been. They're the, res they're the, the result of innovation, 
uh, in, um, uh, technology, uh, autom automation, robotics, that uh, machines are now producing things faster than, than men ever could. Now, this, this last question may be more appropriate for Democrats who are now saying, well, maybe there's some things we can do with Donald Trump. But the question is this, does working with him and giving him legislative victories validate the nasty parts of his campaign? I don't, I don't think so. I, think, uh, I don't think there's any way you can validate the nasty parts of his campaign. And I, I agree completely with the uh, Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, when he said, we're not going to defend the indefensible. And so, no, it doesn't validate anything. What it validates is that if those policies pass the Congress, that they were able to discover agreement. That's all it validates. All right, Congressman Reed Ribble, thanks so much for talking to me. It's good to be with you. Thank you. back. So uh, I think it's fair to say that after the election was over, we we're always going to have some kind of conversation about the future of Obamacare. However, I think that probably we didn't anticipate maybe necessarily having this kind of conversation. And there's evidence to suggest that maybe even Donald Trump didn't even expect to have much of a conversation about the future of Obamacare. Joining us to talk about this, we have Arthur Delaney. Hello. And, of course, one of our key Obamacare whisperers, Jeff Young. Hey. So, um, so Jeff, uh, what do you think the future of Obamacare, what does it look like right now? Well, first, I, I, I have to say that uh, I think it's pretty clear that Trump wasn't prepared to have a conversation about nearly everything. That's definitely the case. It's a complete disaster already, and he's barely been president. He's only been president-elect for, like, a week and change. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, I mean, outside of a possibility where Congress and the Trump administration are such a shit show that they can't even get around to repealing Obamacare, which is unlikely, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say impossible, um, it's gone. Right. Uh, the question is when, how, and what happens afterward. Right. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, before before you could even start talking about the quote unquote replacement plans for Obamacare that people like Paul Ryan talk about, or like the handful of bullet points on Trump's websites and his various directly contradictory statements about what he wants for the healthcare system, it's important to point out, <clears throat> I think, something fundamental. It's a difference between the two parties. The party that is just about to be out of power thinks it's a good thing to spend money so that poor people can go to the doctor. The party that's about to assume total control thinks that's a bad idea and doesn't want to spend money for poor people to go to the doctor. So when they talk about replacement, the way they want it to sound to people, especially their own voters who aren't affected by any of this because they get insurance at work or they're already on Medicare, right. they want those people, at least that's how I see it, to feel better. Oh, well, we're not heartless. We're not just kicking all of those people off their Obamacare. First of all, we're doing them a favor because it's so bad. Second, we're replacing it with something. Except that, and I can't say this, I can't put this more clearly. You can't these two parties aren't trying to achieve the same thing through different means. The goals are not the same, right? Uh, to, again, to recap, Democrats, let's spend money so pre poor people can go to the doctor so we don't have a, 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 the highest rate of uninsurance in the rich world. And Republicans? Right? Don't care. Universal health care is not a goal of the Republican Party. It never has been. Now, let's, let's just make this clear. What you are saying is, and you're an expert on health care policy and legislation, is that because Donald Trump has won and Republicans control both chambers of Congress, Obamacare is toast. Yes. Now, of course, there have been so many other weird things coming through the transom. 
And this is where I talk about this is where I'm going to get to the, my point where it, it, it doesn't appear that Donald Trump was prepared to talk about this, because in some conversations he's talked about keeping the good parts of Obamacare, whatever those things are. Usually when people discuss the good part, they're talking about the ban on throwing people off of insurance for pre-existing conditions. Now, my understanding about the way Obamacare was set up, and it's not a Canadian health care plan, and it's not a national health service like they have in the UK, that all of these pieces sort of hang in concert with one another. And you can't really have a system in which you've uh, tossed, you're keeping the the pre-existing condition ban without also having the individual mandate. Need- which is something everyone in the Republican Party specifically points to as a thing they hate, despite the fact that it was part of the Heritage Foundation's health care reform idea in the first right. place. And, let, and let, let, let's let's lay out briefly the principles we're talking about here. And there are other ways of doing this. But the Obama administration, the Democratic Congress, chose to do it this way, mostly because it had been done successfully already in Massachusetts. There was a real world model. Right. Where you combine several things and they all have to go together for it to work in this construct anyway. One, insurance companies can't turn away anyone regardless of their medical history, nor can they kick them off their insurance once they start accumulating expenses. Right. Right. Two, um, people who are poor will get money to help defray the costs of their health insurance. And three, there's a mandate with a penalty attached to it to get everybody else to buy the insurance so they're not freeloading off the system, right? This is true. That latter part has two aspects of it. One is, like I said, like, you know, is to eliminate free riders. That is, you don't buy health insurance because you don't think you need it. Then you get sick or injured and you go to the hospital and they, they, they fix your ankle or they stitch up your cut and then you don't pay the bill. And then that cost just stays in the system and gets spread around to the rest of us. Because it's right? actually illegal to let people just die. It's not quite as ironclad as that, but hospital emergency rooms aren't allowed to just tell you to piss off. Right. Not exactly anyway. Um, And the other part is, you know, it's insurance. It's still private insurance. Like all insurance, it doesn't work if everyone who buys it is – is making claims on it. Somebody has to be paying in and not taking back. That's the way the insurance we have at work goes. The younger employees pay the premiums every month, and the sicker and older employees are the ones who go to the doctor, and no one really complains about this, right? right? So it was replicating that. Mandates make people upset. I've sort of always understood intuitively why that bothers people. When of you're course. telling me I have to buy it, even people who are already buying it object right. to being told they have oh, to. Oh, I, I object right? to open right. enrollment every fall. See, and that's for the same reason. You're going to make me log in? Because you can't... No! You can't buy health insurance in the way to the hospital in the same way you can't buy car insurance after you wreck your car, right? It just doesn't work. So uh, anyway, um, there may be other ways of doing something like that, you know, all the way up to just doing single payer and putting everybody in the same system and financing it through taxes, right? Um, But when you hear Republicans say, oh, we're going to keep the good parts, the good parts people like. And And they they, were saying that this week on Capitol Hill, that's what they all said. They've been saying it the whole time because it sounds good. Right. So we got to take care of people with pre-existing conditions. And then everyone goes, yay, I like that idea, because one time my grandma was sick. Um, But if you open up the market to people who are definitely going to cost money, you have to make up that money somewhere else. Either it's other people paying for insurance they may not be using, but that's there for them in case something happens or through tax money. One of those two things. Right. Something has to give. The other thing is that. Just sticking with the pre-existing conditions thing. When you hear someone like Paul Ryan or the Trump transition website, like it says something similar to this too, protection of people with pre-existing conditions, they're not talking about the same thing that's in the Affordable Care Act, right? They're not saying, okay, insurance companies, you have to accept anybody regardless. It's not right to turn people away when they need it. What they're saying is this is the most they'll promise, which incidentally is almost already in the law. There's a weak version that's already on the books. It's been around since the 90s, I think. If you currently have health insurance today or whenever the day that the Obamacare repeal takes effect, right? If you have health insurance that day and you never don't have health insurance, someday when you get sick, health insurance companies can't refuse to keep covering you. Right. They call this continuous coverage, which, okay, I mean, that's better than nothing, 
Right. And certainly better than a system where the minute you file a claim for a hospital bill, your insurance company just drops you. Mm-hmm. Right. But imagine this is very easy to imagine this scenario happening over and over and over again. You're a person. You have a job. You get laid off. You get fired. Your company goes out of business. Whatever. But you right? lose your insurance. You lose your health insurance. And you Cobra, Cobra. costs a fortune. Right. You don't have a thousand dollars a month for your for your. Would Cobra, Cobra just come back? It never, it never went still away. Around? It's still around? Yeah, it never went away. Huh. So uh, you don't have that money, and you got to pay your mortgage, and you got your car payment, and maybe you got to buy clothes for your kids, whatever. Your finances are stretched, and you decide, well, we're healthy. I guess I got to go without the health insurance because that's the one expense I can cut, right? right. Well, now— No continuous coverage. Right. If you've ever been sick before, if you have even—in uh, some cases, if you just have, like, a propensity toward a particular ailment— Right. Like I'm asthmatic. Yeah. Then if you go try to buy health insurance again after that, the insurance companies can say, nope, and you're out forever unless you get it from work because other federal laws govern workplace benefits. If you work at a company that offers health benefits, they're not allowed to take your health status into account when offering you the benefits or charging you the premiums. Everybody pays the same. I got a politics question. A lot. And this is something that. I've been uh, I've sort of thought and I know a lot of other people say that Republicans don't really want to repeal Obamacare, these other programs, because they're going to eat it at the polls because it'll make people mad to have <laughs> yeah, a benefit taken away. And and if we recall, d- during the ramp up to Obamacare, uh, a not massive but not insignificant number of people temporarily lost their health insurance. And it was a huge scandal. And yeah, Although, to be clear, no one was uninsured. I know, they were told it, their plans would not be renewed the following correct, year. Correct. But it was a huge media scandal. What the Republicans are courting now are throwing millions of people off That's their right. insurance. Yes. And, and, uh, Won't and, uh, there be a concomitant media backlash? Right. And... and, uh, and uh, A piece of evidence for this could be that look what Republicans did when they had total control of government last. They made they made Medicare an even bigger entitlement. They added Medicare Part D for prescription drug coverage. They didn't privatize Social Security. They gave out pills. Yeah. Well, I mean, a few things there. First of all, this is not George W. Bush's Republican Party anymore. In fact, deficit financing the Medicare drug benefit is one of the things that started pushing that party to the right. Mm. There were even Republicans in the House when that happened who refused to vote for it because it was an unfunded entitlement expansion. That type of thinking in 2003 now dominates the way congressional Republicans the, think. The contrary thinking, the angrier yes. thinking. Right. The like no entitlement expansions, no more government health care, blah, 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 blah. Like, that's not how most people think, or at least what they say they think, because that's sort of the zeitgeist. This was part of the Tea Party as well, right? So, yes, it's entirely possible. And because there's direct and quite similar evidence from 2013, Jason, as you were saying, about, like, some, somewhere between half a million and a million people uh, weren't allowed to renew their health insurance policies and had to buy a new Obamacare regulated plan instead. And in some cases, they were more expensive. Right. That number got blown away. That five million number was floating around forever and it was just false the whole time. But now that's the number everybody remembers. Anyway. So, yes, it could totally be true. Like, oh, man, Congress just voted to kick 20 million people off their health insurance. What a bunch of jerks. Right. I mean, I'm just imagining like a sob story a day. Right. Yes. And that. okay. so you'll see that. Right. Here's the other way of looking at it. Donald Trump and the and the Republicans who serve in Congress right now, especially in the House, their voters don't care. They just elected them partly like part of what they ran on was we're going to take insurance away from all these people because we can't afford it. Right. It's too expensive. There's also and Arthur, you know, this from talking to people who who have gotten, uh, you know, benefits like like food, food benefits, other things. People think there is a common conception that the only people who get these benefits are lazy minorities. Right. So if you if you're the white nationalist president and you've convinced your voters that that's who you're, you're fighting for them instead of those other people, right? All you have to do is hint, like, those 20 million people are just lazy. Or, for instance, you call it Obamacare. There you go. Because right? Trump so, himself is not a—he likes the welfare state. He says he's all for keeping Social Security the way it is. We can't—you can't look at the things he says about anything and take them at face value no, because he contradicts can't. himself yeah. all yeah. the time. Yeah. It's 100% right? true. This 100% is a guy true. who said, we, during, during this campaign, we have to have universal coverage. He's not proposing anything that looks remotely like that. Yeah. Right? He doesn't mean it. He doesn't care. He says the first thing that, the last thing that popped into his mind that he thinks is going to make the person he's talking to like him 
or approve of him or be impressed by him or whatever. And then the next person he talks to, he says something totally different. You know, I, this is why I suspect this this healthcare stuff will all be dictated by Congress, uh, because I don't think he cares that much, right? But so yes, the most obvious political ramifications of eliminating health insurance benefits to twenty million people with either nothing, or something much worse in terms, especially for the people who are benefiting from the Affordable Care Act. You know, uh, yeah, the most obvious thing is like people go, "Wow, that's really mean. What a bunch of jerks!" Right? But I don't know that there's a single Republican in the House who'd lose a seat over that. All right. Well, right. And I, they would lose a seat over not repealing Obamacare. <clears throat> yeah. It's, well, that's extraordinary because I do think uh, I, I do think uh, in the 2014 election, the Democrats paid a big price for that trumped up scandal. Um, at any rate. So <laughs> thanks for a bleak glimpse at the future. I'm not feeling good about care. things, Jason. I, I know, Jeff. I know. I know. But you, but yeah. OK. No, Je- Jeff, mad. No, way, no other way to talk about it. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Uh, we will be right back. And we're back. Uh, we're joined, as always, by Arthur Delaney. Hi. And uh, joining us in the other chair, we have uh, Huffington Post foreign policy reporter Jessica Scholberg. Hey. So we wanted to talk today about sort of the emerging uh, Trump foreign policy team and maybe try to get at uh, what contours we can and what a Trump doctrine, you know, how, how you know presidents come along and you slap the word doctrine next to their last name and it becomes like a foreign policy meme to talk at and discuss. I want to get at the idea of what a Trump doctrine might might look like. So, Jessica, we've already seen, like, some hints at appointments. Uh, Giuliani at state or Michael Bolton at state. I think we've had a couple people floated John for defense. John Bolton at state. Which is, which is Michael crazy. Michael Bolton would be exciting. Oh, did, what did, I, did I say <laughs> Michael Bolton? You did. Okay, well, go figure. That you was, know, it's all it's all up for grabs right now. I think I, if Michael Bolton thinks he'd be a good sex date, he the, should really just put his name out there. You know, that, the Trump doctrine could be really musical. <laughs> Sounds pretty exciting. Uh, that mistake was always going to be made by somebody. I'm glad to have made it for the rest of the media. Let's not ever make that mistake again. But but what do you what do you what do you see emerging right now from what we know? What's going on at the Trump transition team? Huh. Well, it's it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, if we're gonna look at who is being floated as a possible secretary of state. These are people who in some cases are just diametrically opposed to everything that Trump has sort of said he would do in foreign policy while he was on the campaign trail. If we're going to look at John Bolton, he's he's a hawk's hawk. He is ultra, ultra warmongery. He still says that the Iraq war was a good idea. Um, very, very, very hawkish towards Russia. And as we know, Trump has said that a centerpiece of his worldview um, his foreign policy agenda would be to repair ties with Russia. Uh, he had a phone call yesterday with Putin where um, a Kremlin— Sure wasn't the first one. <laughs> right. Um, but the first kind of official one and a, a Kremlin readout of that call said that Putin and Trump discussed the need to normalize relations and said that the current relationship um, is entirely unacceptable, which is fascinating when you look at, you know, Obama's been getting slammed by the Republicans for the past year for even these very meager, limited attempts at coordinating with Russia and Syria— People like Bolton have said that Obama's, I think Bolton said Obama was sleepwalking and letting Russia just kind of take over the Middle East. I'm sure he used the word feckless, too. Bolton likes to use the word feckless. <laughs> yeah. so, so maybe Trump's playing good cop, bad cop with, my, with, with I, Michael I think Bolton giving, I think being the bad cop. I think you're giving him too much of a, the assumption of strategic intelligence here. But sure, that could, that could work. Uh, it is kind of a puzzling thing. I think that a lot of uh, Trump supporters, maybe the most naive among them, uh, saw Trump as someone who is going to keep us out of wars. Right. Uh, and I never understood where they got that rationale from during the campaign. This is before it became clear that John Bolton was a credible possibility at state. Uh, but now it seems like the scales are down, right? This is going to be a pretty hawkish... Uh, presidency. I mean, it's honestly just such a crapshoot. It's it's hard to tell. John Bolton might not be the Secretary of State. It could be Rudy Giuliani, who has no foreign policy experience. I think um, what we can garner from his foreign policy outlook is that he wants to steal oil 
and ban refugees because 10% of them might be ISIS terrorists. He supported the MEK. Right. He supports the MEK, which uh, for our listeners who do not know is a uh, used to be designated as a terrorist organization. They're kind of an Iranian opposition group. Um, who is opposed to the current Iranian regime, which has sort of endeared them to a lot of hawkish Republicans who obviously don't like the current Iranian regime. Uh, But it's also hard to say if Trump would even listen to his advisors. I mean, I think Obama's been a pretty good example of somebody who has, in several cases, sort of sidelined the State Department and done a lot of big foreign policy decisions on his own. So there's, there's no say that uh, John Bolton as Secretary of State would automatically lead to a hawkish Trump presidency. Uh, the Trump transition team had this former Congressman Mike Rogers uh, advising on national security, you know, helping mm-hmm. staff up the the next administration. But then he left mm-hmm. on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. What does that is that spell like? Trump establishment trouble? Does it mean anything to you? It, it could. We also saw um, today a man named Elliot Cohen. You mean on Tuesday? On Tuesday, a man named Elliot Cohen, uh, gosh, I'm not used to this, uh, who was one of the big Republican never Trumpers. And uh, just a few days ago, he wrote an article basically saying, you know, he'll probably never be asked to serve in a Trump administration because he's been so critical, but he wouldn't automatically tell his colleagues not to do so. It was sort of this, you know, for the good of the country and as long as... Olive branch. Right, as long as you're willing to, you know, not compromise your values or back down on what you believe, you know, you can do some good. Um, This Tuesday morning, he tweeted out that after a meeting with the Trump transition team, he would completely take back that advice. He said, these people are nuts. They're angry. They were screaming at me. You lost. Like, there's there's no positive work to be done here for serious foreign policy-minded folks. This is wild stuff. This doesn't happen (laughs) with a normal presidential transition. No, it really doesn't. People coming and going and screaming. Especially the likes of Elliot Cohen. I mean, he's not one to be running around, like, screaming on Twitter. No, especially was... in the midst of, like, an establishment Trump honeymoon. Right. right. That it was unexpectedly, like, in full bloom at the beginning of the week, collapsed by Tuesday. Mm-hmm. It, well, partially collapsed. <clears throat> what do you, uh, what's your read on uh, State Department lifers? What their life's going to be like under that's, Trump? That's fascinating. I've been reaching out to a lot of them, and, and they're not answering me. So, if you're a State Department lifer and you're listening to this, like get get in touch because I I think for some people it's going to be kind of a wait and see how bad is this. I think some people have mortgages to pay, they got kids to take care of, sure. they they you know they can't just go out and quit. You know, maybe they're they're looking at next steps. I talked to one guy who left the State Department recently who said a lot of his friends are like, well, the Egypt's looking pretty good, and are just sort of angling themselves to get the hell out of here because those posts abroad are for three years. Uh, and so even though it might be sort of uh, tenuous being abroad under a Trump administration, it beats the hell out of being in D.C. It is kind of curious. I feel like we knew a lot about what the Obama foreign policy doctrine was going to be a lot sooner than a week after the election. I don't know if that's true. I think we knew we wanted the Obama foreign policy doctrine to be and what we expected it to be. I think I think it's actually a piece I'm writing now is how, you know, for all President Obama campaigned on, you know, ending secret and unauthorized warfare, you know, in a lot of ways he expanded executive authority with regards to drone killing, a secret drone program. Um, he banned torture, but at the same time, you know, actively discouraged uh, Senate staffers who are working to bring accountability to the people who oversaw the torture program. Um, I think for a lot of progressives, Obama's foreign policy agenda has actually been a little bit disappointing. And there's obviously bright spots, especially with regards to Iran, you know, choosing diplomacy over uh, leaning in towards war. Um, but overall, he set quite a precedent for President-elect Donald Trump to do whatever the hell he wants in the That's world. That's true. That's and, true. And Donald Trump said he's bringing torture back. I mean, during the campaign, back. but it seems Waterboarding clear. Waterboarding and worse. Waterboarding is what they do at frat parties, so. Hmm. <laughs> right, exactly. Hmm. <clears throat> um, last thing, because I know you've, I know you've done a lot of research on the Iran deal. Um, what, how does the world change in a world where the president tears up the Iran nuclear deal? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's hard to say what that would even look like, because, again, this isn't just a deal between the U.S. and Iran. This is a deal between the U.S., Iran, and five other countries, um, including our European allies, as well as Russia um, and China. And, you know, I, I wrote last week that it's almost unfathomable that Donald Trump would get into office on day one and just rip up the deal. 
Um, he actually was one of the least inclined to do so, to say that he would do so on the campaign trail. He kept talking about wanting to renegotiate the deal. Again, it's hard to see what that would even look like because you wouldn't get buy-in from the other negotiating partners. And in Iran, President Rouhani, who is sort of seen as like the, the best person to push forward on the Iranian side for negotiations, um, he's up for election in 2017. And the only way he's going to get reelected is if he can say, like, look, this deal has brought tangible benefits to us. And so far, it's actually been slow to help the Iranian economy. Sanctions relief hasn't been has been pretty slow and gradual. Um, and the last thing that he needs going into an election is saying, like, oh, yeah, we got to give up some more concessions to this Looney Tune in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, my my big concern about any time Donald Trump talks about making a deal <laughs> is that he doesn't seem to have a vocabulary that includes sort of positive sum gains right. for everyone at the party. I right. think he feels like if if America's conceding anything, then America's losing. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure you can make deals without being able to offer, if not just face-saving ability to the other two other partners across the table, but something tangible that they can they can extract from the Right, the and that, that, that was a big message coming out of the Obama administration's negotiating team is like, this deal will not work unless both sides can walk away, go back home and say, look, we won. And to a lot of deal opponents in the U.S., any time that the Iranians would tout some kind of gain that they got from it, um, people in the U.S. would be like, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. We gave up so much. But it's like, that's how deals work. Deals aren't sustainable if if one side feels like it got obliterated. All right. Well, just to put a button on this, um, Washington Post Dave Weigel reported today that he talked to uh, Senator Rand Paul. Remember, remember Senator Rand Paul? Remember president, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Senator Paul says he's not inclined to support the uh, nominations of either Giuliani or Bolton to state. So right now, we've got to remember, that's also where the action is mm-hmm. right now. Uh, the senators who will eventually approve or disapprove of these appointments. And Although, Paul actually had a long op-ed today <clears throat> that was uh, pretty, pretty on brutal on, on Tuesday on John yeah. Bolton um, being a lunatic warmonger. And we should keep in mind that Rand Paul had a, what was it, 11, 13-hour filibuster. Um, All on, about yeah. the drone killing. On CIA yeah. Director yeah. John Brennan's confirmation hearing because he wanted more disclosure about the secret drone killing. So we should keep an eye on that. All that being said, it's very unprecedented for uh, a Congress, especially a Congress that shares the same party affiliation as the president, to go ride herd over their nominations so hardcore. But we are, I guess, in kind of undiscovered country at this point in time. All right. Well, uh, Jessica, thanks for for being with us and Arthur, and uh, we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Congressman Reed Ribble, and Huffington Post reporters Arthur Delaney, Jessica Schulberg, Sam Stein, and Jeffrey Young. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash so that happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.